Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schimmer Podcast. Thanks for choosing to hang out again this week. If you like what you hear, please spread the word, subscribe, rate the podcast. And also don't forget to send me your feedback, your input, suggestions for interview guests, possible segments, topics, or just how to make this a more enjoyable experience for you. And also, of course, send in your topics or questions for Assessment Corner. So you can tweet me personally, at Tom Shimmer, or the show's Twitter handle, which is at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can also email me. The email for the show is TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Today, I'm fired up because I have my close friend and colleague, Nicole Dimich. Now, along with all of the assessment, speaking, training, and writing that Nicole does, she is also the executive director of Thrive Ed, which is a nonprofit in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area that cultivates partnerships with school districts to reimagine school here in the 21st century. Well, this is part one of our two-part focus on Thrive. Next week, I'm going to have three students on to talk about their experiences as well. Now, in the news, we'll include some story, a story out of Utah about how one school district is providing a COVID bonus to its teachers. Assessment Corner includes a question about student accountability. And as always, we finish up today's pod with Tweets of the Week. So that's the plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Nicole Dimich is coming up momentarily, but first, don't at me, but I've got something to say, and that is, we have to keep it real. Now, I've seen a lot of stories lately that center on two specific topics. The first is a lot of stories about teachers and principals, well, just about how stressed out everybody is given our current situation and circumstance. I've also seen a lot of stories about this thing referred to as toxic positivity, especially, of course, during this COVID-19 pandemic. So let's start with the latter. I believe in the power of a positive mindset. Without going into too much detail at this point, and maybe I will one day, I had a stage very early on in my adult life where my default disposition was negativity. It wasn't that I was a negative person. But it was that no matter what the situation was, I would immediately obsess about the worst case scenario. And I'm pretty confident it cost me something I had worked really hard to achieve. Now, thinking about the worst case scenario isn't always bad. In an October of 2019 episode of the podcast called The Happiness Lab, Dr. Lori Santos of Yale University described how Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps used to consider the worst-case scenarios so that he might be ready to respond. Now, Dr. Santos has a class at Yale called Psychology and the Good Life, and it focuses on two questions. What makes us truly happy, and how do we achieve a good life? That class has actually become the most popular class at Yale. But anyway, it's a great podcast and one I would really encourage you to check out. So back to Michael Phelps. One of the scenarios that Michael Phelps rehearsed was if his goggles came off. And he knew through simulation that if that happened, he could swim blind, so to speak, because he figured out that it was exactly 19 strokes from one end of the pool to the other. And that's the difference for me. There's a difference between the simulation or thinking about worst case scenario to be prepared versus perseverating on the worst case outcome with no subsequent idea of what to do. The latter was me. 
Now, after my experience, I first vowed to never let that happen again. It was the worst. And I've spent the rest of my life retraining my brain. This has been especially true over the last 15 to 20 years because very early on, I realized now that I lacked the maturity necessary to truly change my mindset. I've developed habits that have allowed me to recognize when that old mindset appears. And I've actually found strategies that can reshape my current thoughts to change my experiences. Those strategies have become habits and my default mindset is now completely different. I have come to know, at least for me, that my experiences are shaped by how I feel. How I feel comes from what I think. If you think it, you'll feel it. So if I don't like how I'm feeling, then I just work at changing what I'm thinking. So whether it's something as simple as playing music or any other small act or strategy, I've learned to meaningfully impact my mind so I can feel different, which does allow me to experience situations in a slightly different manner. And you see, that's the difference for me. The mere act of thinking positive thoughts will never do anything as far as I'm concerned. If you know that your thoughts are implausible, then, at least for me, they're going to have zero impact. Plausibility doesn't have to mean realistic. There are countless examples of people believing things others thought not realistic. But they were actually plausible. right? So think about how many young athletes grow up thinking about playing professionally. A very small percentage end up actually doing that, so it's not very realistic, but it is plausible because someone has to sign those contracts. If we didn't have the ability to change our perception of any situation, then there would be no such thing as perspective. Our minds are incredibly powerful. Well, don't take my word for it. Take it from Bruce Lipton, the renowned cell biologist who wrote in his book, The Biology of Belief, about how the cells in your body are literally affected by your thoughts. I mean, most of us understand the idea of a placebo. That alone should tell us how powerful our minds are. Now, for me, there's a huge difference between being an authentic optimist or someone who thinks positively from the person who brings the kind of toxic positivity that a lot of the stories have been talking about. In a recent blog post, Samara Contero and Jamie Long defined toxic positivity as, quote, the excessive and ineffective overgeneralization of happy, optimistic states across all situations. The process of toxic positivity results in the denial, the minimization, and the invalidation of the authentic emotional human experience. We don't need that. Not one bit. Optimists or authentic positive thinkers don't deny reality or ignore the truth about situations. They don't live in states of delusion. They acknowledge the reality of the situation and quickly pivot to actively problem solve ways to either improve the situation or at least manage the situation. Now, right now, everyone is stressed. And the last thing any of us need is to be hit with the kind of Pollyanna-type positivity that is tone-deaf to the real experiences we are all having. As colleagues, and especially for those of you in leadership positions, we need to validate people's emotional experiences. Yes, some may be falling prey to only living from the described experiences and overreacting at times to this current situation. You'll recall back in episode one, I talked about Ido and Areb's research around the lived versus the described experiences. But even if they are overreacting, they still need to be heard, they still need to be validated, and they still need to be supported. Our positive outlook or optimism can serve us well as we help others pivot to problem solve or manage their situations. 
no matter how positive you might instinctively need or want to be, we need to keep it real. We need to keep it grounded. People carrying the emotional stress or expressing how overwhelmed they are are not complaining or weak. They need to be heard and they need to be supported. There is nothing normal about what is going on right now. And while I believe in authentic positive thinking to manage and problem solve, I think that's the way forward. Denying how hard this is, either to yourself or to others, is to make people feel less than, and in all likelihood, cause them to withhold their feelings for fear of being made to feel inferior once again. So keep it real. I mean, be prepared to look each other in the eye and say, I don't know, or I'm concerned too, or I'm not sure what's going to happen. That will help others realize they are not alone and that their thoughts and feelings aren't absurd. Empathy is what is needed right now. According to the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, emotions drive effective teaching and that educators' emotions matter for five primary reasons. The first is that emotions matter for attention, memory, and learning. Chronic stress, especially when poorly managed, can result in the persistent activation of the sympathetic nervous system and the release of stress hormones like cortisol. Now, prolonged release of this and other neurochemicals impact the brain structures associated with executive functioning and memory, diminishing our ability to be effective educators and undermining student learning. The second reason is that emotions matter, is that they matter for decision-making. When we're overwhelmed and feeling scared and stressed, the areas of our brain responsible for wise decision-making can also become hijacked. The third is that emotions matter for relationships. According to the Yale Center, how we feel and how we interpret the feelings of others send signals for other people to either approach or avoid us. Teachers who express anxiety or frustration are likely to alienate their students, which can impact their students' sense of safety in the classroom, and likely at home in a virtual learning environment, thereby having a negative influence on learning. Fourth, emotions matter for health and well-being. How we feel influences our bodies, including physical and mental health, both the ability to regulate unpleasant emotions and the experience of more pleasant emotions have been shown to have health benefits, including fostering greater resilience during and after traumatic events. And fifth, the Yale Center asserts that emotions matter for performance. Chronic stress amongst teachers is linked to decreases in teacher motivation and engagement, both of which lead to burnout. The teachers who are burnt out have poorer relationships with students and are also less likely to be positive role models for healthy self-regulation, both for their students and for their families. So what is the solution? Well, according to the Yale Center, it's two things. First, we as individuals need to become more self-aware. We need to be able to develop the ability to recognize our emotions accurately, to understand their causes and their consequences. We need to be able to label them precisely, and we need to be able to express them comfortably and then regulate them effectively. Awareness is huge. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation where you've been angry, but then suddenly became aware of how angry you were. And as soon as you became aware of how angry you were, the anger dissipated. 
And I have learned, though I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've mastered this by any stretch. I have learned how powerful that level of self-awareness is. It's almost like watching yourself as a third party. The second is for administrators. According to the Yale Center, teachers who work in a school with an administrator who has a more developed emotional skill set, they tend to experience fewer negative emotions and more positive emotions. Administrators right now need to spend a disproportionate amount of time focused on teachers' mental health and mental well-being. So teachers can be at their absolute best for their students. At the district level, focus on principals. Same thing. And don't forget about parents. They're also stressed and feeling the pressure right now of all of this uncertainty. And the easiest thing to do is default into a disposition of blame and finger pointing. Stay real and stay grounded. Sure, be an optimist about our ability to handle the current stress, but just flippantly saying, we'll get through this is not enough. I mean, what else are you going to say? Are you actually going to say, well, this is it. We might as well shut her down. I mean, these flippant comments about, we'll get through this, or you got this. Of course we're going to get through this. We know that. But we've got to find ways to authentically move forward and manage the stress that we're having right now. The issue is not whether we'll get through it. The issue is now. People need support now. They need to be seen now. They need to know that their fears are being heard now. I mean, just because you think it or feel it, it doesn't mean you're right. I mean, you could be way off, but that doesn't discredit your feelings as being authentic. Feelings can be both real and wrong. But this isn't about right and wrong. Now, people will, in my opinion, come to the conclusion on their own whether or not they are right or wrong about how they're feeling. But with the right amount of patience, the right amount of acknowledgement, and the right amount of support, that's when that's going to happen. Be optimistic. Stay positive. But most importantly, keep it real. Okay, joining me today for the interview is Nicole Dimich. She is the executive director of Thrive Ed. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, Nicole is one of my dearest friends and one of my closest colleagues. Uh, she, along with myself and Cassandra Erkins, are the architects for the Solution Tree Assessment Center. Uh, she is an educator, she is an author. She's written five books, three of which we have co-authored together, so full disclosure, and uh, numerous book chapters as well. She's an innovator. She's one of the very best workshop facilitators I've ever worked with, and I've learned a ton from her about facilitation uh, through her presentations, her consultations, her trainings. She helps power student voice and build on educators' strengths to create spaces where all feel possible and feel empowered. And that is why she is here today. So Nicole is the executive director of Thrive Ed, as I mentioned. It is a nonprofit out of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, whose vision is to create a school that promotes personalized learning, the development of competencies, feedback, mentorship, internships, and authentic learning that will also serve as a learning lab for other schools and collaborative teams. So we're going to dig into all things Thrive Ed today. So with that, Nicole, I want to welcome you to the Tom Shimmer podcast. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. Um, you know, we, uh, we work very closely together, but we're going to put our serious hats on now and talk about Thrive Ed and uh, give you a chance to share with the listeners uh, what Thrive Ed is all about. So we're going to start with a question that's sort of a, a broad-based question, uh, a view from, say, you know, 30,000 feet. What is Thrive Ed? And 
what was your inspiration for starting it? Awesome. Thank you so much. We at um, Student Voice has always been something that I've been incredibly passionate about. In fact, as a teacher, I was always I was always wanting to know from students, how are you experiencing school? How, how are things going? And, and as, um, as, I, as I started to realize that when you start to ask students what they're thinking about, their feedback, give them space to share their stories, to share their insights, they start to invest and um, just be really present in the community in different ways. And so, I have had this dream for a while of creating space for students to share their thinking about education in so many ways. And so often as adults, we make decisions that deeply impact students and the way they experience school, their success in school, their perceptions of school without them at the table. And so I have been on this journey of running focus groups with students for probably over 15 years, um, anything from asking students about the, the power of assessment or the impact of grades um, and asking them to talk about in places they felt very successful, what shuts them down. Um, and I just started to realize that their per they had so much to offer. And when I listened deeply to their insights, I got different ideas about how to support students in their learning. And then I started to ask teachers, what would they like to know from their students? And I started to um, ask, stud ask students um, of, of teachers to say, okay, what are, what are you interested in? Or how are things working for you? And when I would reflect back to teachers, what students said, there was a different way of thinking about their practice. And so Thrive Ed became a space for what would it be like if we put students in as decision makers um, and and lifted their voice and did this co-creation of, um, of not only learning, but also this school. And I think it can be really hard to create a different way of school that you have not experienced. And so the idea was to work alongside students and educators and families to say, how do we reinvent, reinvent education? How do we reinvent a school or learning experience? And so Thrive Ed was um, imagined a long time ago, a year and a half ago, we launched with the design team and we started to bring students to the table. And now we are developing Design to Thrive workshops where students and teachers will work together. We are um, having students create content. So they're writing blogs. We have a blog. Um, they're recording pieces. They are in the middle of writing a book about their ideas and their experiences and how that can influence. And then the third um, aspect is the collaborative lab school where we would create a school alongside communities um, uh, school districts um, and that we would sit on the edges of a school district and we would be a collaborative lab school so that teachers and students could have this whole new way of experiencing school and we want students to be a really important partner in the design of what that looks like and so it's kind of it's it's really been beautiful as we've had a couple of um, a number of pilot experiences where we've brought teachers and students together and say, what does it look like and feel like when you're co-designing something? Um, because there's this sense of needing to let go of a little control yeah. <laughs> and um, put students in uh, facilitated conversations where they are able to articulate where they're at, but then do some learning alongside of it. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes students will say, oh, I want a longer lunch <laughs> and no homework. Right. And so we've had to, to really figure out what does it look like to create spaces where students are 
are given voice and then also given these learning experiences that allow them to really thoughtfully engage alongside of their their um, their peers and their and their teachers. So yeah, thrive that space where we're experimenting all with all of these <laughs> different types yeah. of ways to bring students in. <laughs> wow, it is um, you know one of the things you you mentioned very early on was students being you know it's it, we always talk about having students be decision makers and all that, but it's very challenging at times for some of us to give up that control for sure. So uh, I can see where this could really help uh, facilitate that. But one of the things you mentioned very early in, in your answer was students being present in the community. And I can't help but think about the events of this past summer. You are obviously in the Minneapolis St. Paul area and the world, you know, witnessed uh, George Floyd's death and, and the, the, you know, last May and, and all that happened in the aftermath of that, eh, the protests, the riots, the, the racial tension, all of that sort of centered around this area. And I'm wondering about how those events impacted. Let's first start with the sort of uh, the work of Thrive Ed. And then I want to talk about the students, but let's first start with, you know, how, how did, did that, did the events of last summer sort of focus you a little bit more? Did it, did it create some uh, expansion with the work of Thrive Ed? Did it accelerate the work? T tell me a little bit about how the events of last summer impacted your work. It did. And um, even before the events of last summer, um, we are incredibly committed to creating spaces where black, brown, and indigenous students are, their voices are elevated and that we're looking deeply into the inequities or the racial inequities of education in general. And that has been, so wanting to create, um, so our interns are, are very diverse in terms of not only race, but also how they've experienced school. Some are very successful, some are not, um, or haven't been as successful in our current system. And so when the events, when when the events of um, the the protests, the riots, in the light of George Floyd's murder happened, our students were online. We were actually starting our internship program, and um, where students were coming together, and we were doing it all via Zoom. And um, the students themselves are from all over communities around um, Minneapolis, and many of them had experienced firsthand um, some of the, the, the sense, just some of the devastation and the trauma that they were experiencing. And so I will never forget, it was, um, it was two days after um, George Floyd's murder and we were having an online event where we invited a bunch of students to talk about school and the students were leading the conversation and they led with their own experiences and how they were feeling about what had happened and then what that meant personally to, to them and to their families. And some of them had, had been on the streets um, um, protesting in a very um, calm way and had experienced some pretty traumatic things. And so it, it, Thrive Ed became a space where they could start to share and be really authentic and honest about where they were at and how this was affecting them personally. And it wasn't only our students, it was also our teachers who are living in the communities. And um, in fact, some were living right on this um, near what, where everything was happening and did not feel safe at night at times. And so Thrive Ed became this space where it was really authentic. It was an authentic space where the, the students actually led the conversation. And at the end of the evening, we had adults, we had a lot of people join us that evening to listen to what the students had said. And they were there to listen to what students had to say about education. 
And they were blown away by how students led this uh, moments of silence for what had happened and then had, a, had really thoughtful ways of asking folks to share their feelings and share how they were, you know, what they thought the impact of this would be. And at the end of the night, we realized, you know, this is, this is the reason we need to be doing this is that students along with educators, we need to create these places that are really brave, um, brave spaces where um, all stakeholders can really share what's what matters deeply to them and co-create this space and so it was just almost a recommitment to this is the right work this is the right time to create education in a way where students can feel seen feel possible and have high expectations because I think that's the other thing that's happened in so many cases is school has has um, has not been a place where students necessarily in particular students of color feel like they have strengths that they're bringing to the table that in so many cases in a lot of cases it feels like um, everything is about the deficits and the things that aren't there and so Thrive Ed is really based on strength-based um, work that elevates students but also puts them in co-designing modes which also just helps them figure out um, um, what is possible versus what's you know everything that's wrong so I think the, that that time in our in our world and specifically locally was a time that re-energized all of us um, because in the midst of a pandemic we were can we do this we're a beginning nonprofit, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of shifting of i mean the resources that people have are very much tapped and well we have had amazing feedback about the idea of putting students as powerful partners in this um it also is a, a we're at the very very beginning and it was just a moment where we all said okay this is right we're at, yeah. we're at the right time to do this it so. sounds like the the students came back more committed than ever and more you know invested not just in themselves but in the community and and trying to be those voices and leaders um that um you know many in society don't necessarily see young people as having the ability to lead and have a voice and, and often adults, mostly I would say outside the school system, don't give a lot of credibility to the voices of young people. I wouldn't say most adults do that, but, but many adults don't give a lot of credibility to that. And you are just proving through what Thrive Ed is all about that, that students can really sort of be leaders and have those voices in, in the work. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it must've been an incredible time to, uh, can you think of a specific moment, uh, not to put you on the spot, but a specific moment that happened uh, where you just where that where you where it just clicked for you? You just went, okay, this is exactly why we need to do this work. Just maybe this summer there was a moment or a a comment or a, or an impression that was made, uh, either a comment from someone participating or one of the students that really brought things home for you and just said, okay, that's that's solidifying why we need to do this work. Yes, I can think of a few. Our students are incredibly insightful. And one student, I was doing some exit interviews after the end of our summer program. And the students formed two teams and they were working to develop a two-day workshop experience for teachers and their students. And one of the student interns said, when I, before I started at Thrive Ed, I knew I wanted to change school, but now because of this experience, I know how to. Mm -hmm. And it was such a powerful moment because he was talking about how before to provide feedback to his school about what was working, what was, wasn't. 
and he was not successful. And he said, now I have so much more confidence because I have done the research. Um, the students would be reading articles about different aspects of school. They'd be talking about what their experience was and what that, how that related to what they were reading and researching. And he just felt like, I, I know how to move forward. I know how to have this conversation with adults now. And I have the confidence to do that. Um, and I think that, to me, that was a moment where I just thought, that's what this is all about, is really providing students this sense of a space to learn. And they were learning. They were learning how to collaborate with each other. Um, they were learning how a lot of them talked about their leadership skills because we had two, um, the two of the students would meet with our engagement guides or teachers prior to the meetings of the week, and they would lead the design meetings. And so they really talked about how they developed their leadership skills. Um, and, and then they were just, they, they became very passionate about how to create an equitable education and even small things that will, that can, can create big spaces. They also dream big. So we provided them like, well, like, let's not say what we can't do that. What if we right. tried? Like, let's go big. <laughs> let's mm -hmm. figure out. Yeah. And yeah. so they want to, um, they want to visit each, they're from all different types of schools around the metro area. So our goal when the pandemic settles down and we figure out how to do this a little differently um, is to, to have each of our teams go visit each other's schools and host conversations with their teachers and with other students because they've really learned how to facilitate powerful conversations and help, help people really reflect on um, how to do things differently. And, to, and I think the other thing that's really important is that it's not about... Um, it's people are really, they really talk about how it's hard for, for people to change. And they talk in particular about how it's, it can be really difficult and uncomfortable for their teachers to change because they feel like they've been doing something wrong. And one of the things I've been so blown away by is that our students are just, are, they're, they're, they're able to articulate, it's okay that you didn't do it this way before, but let's do it this way now. We know, why are we waiting? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they really talk about how difficult change is, but why, why would we not change? And so yeah. um, we had one other, one other quick uh, thing. One of our sure. students, we were talking about curriculum. We were talking about, um, and the question that they wanted to ask and talk to each other about was, is their curriculum relevant? And one of the students said, you know, the thing that bugs me the most is that when we spend two weeks on something I could learn on YouTube in five minutes. <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> so they are so, I mean, it's just really fun yeah. to hear them talk about the possibilities. So <laughs> It is. Um, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, a couple of things that come to mind as you were describing those moments, one being that um, we sometimes we just have to ask them and 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 give them the opportunity to share with us and the other part is once we ask them it's really important for us to not get defensive about what they're saying and just be open to the fact that we are you know by, by asking the question we should be signaling to them that we're open to being different we're open to serving your needs as learners both individually and collectively so that is you know what what an inspiring sort of moments you've had um in, in this conversation about re reinventing school, which I think a lot of people are having, but what I appreciate about, you know, what Thrive Ed is doing is you're, you're very articulate about why we, we need to reinvent school, right? So you cite 
four reasons why schools need to be reinvented. One being the, I think, I think the first one is, uh, is fairly ubiquitous in terms of uh, people's approaches and realizing that the factory model is just not working for us anymore. And I think many would agree with that, of course. Uh, the second being that students are not mastering those critical competencies for 20, the 21st century. And of course, you and I, along with Cassandra, wrote extensively about that um, in our book, Growing Tomorrow Citizens. So, I mean, we, we, we talk about that. I'm interested in a couple of the connections I made. The third one was that you mentioned something I did not know, uh, was that Minnesota has one of the worst achievement gaps in the country. So let's talk about that for a moment, and then, I will, and then we'll go on to the fourth one. But tell me a little bit, that surprises me a little bit. And uh, can you give listeners maybe a little bit of detail on what that looks like? Absolutely. Yes. It's um, if you're in Minnesota, overall, it can appear that we have an incredible education system given the data that we, um, that often we look at. If you break it down, you can see that if you are a brown or black or indigenous student, you are three times less likely to graduate from high school than if you're white. And so that's um, our, our incidences of students who are in AP courses, um, even students who perhaps have test scores that would indicate they would be ready for an AP score in that traditional sense. <laughs> so right. I want to put that caveat on there. Right. Um, don't take our AP courses because they don't see themselves um, or feel like they're successful or are counseled out of those yeah. courses. And so uh, Minnesota um, in, it, in, in general has some really amazing pockets of things happening. And overall, um, it's, a very, it's a very grim situation for students mm. of color. And so, um, yes, it's, it's, yeah. it, it's one of those things where people would never, if you dig in deeper, you'll start to understand it's a very complex issue, of course. Right. Um, and people are working incredibly hard. It's not to mm -hmm. say that. And there have yeah. been lots of attempts to try to figure out what, what this looks like right. and why this is. Yeah, so just trying to find the right work, right? It's it's not about necessarily intentions, but and such a polarized experience that the school system is working for many, but not all. It's working for some, and therefore the reinvention of schools seems seems most appropriate. The fourth reason you you cite is that, and we know this, that an alarming percentage of of new teachers leave the profession within the first five years of teaching. But I'm interested to know what connection you're making between the work at Thrive Ed and how, how you see that uh, inspiring teachers to remain in the profession versus leave the profession in those first five years? Yes. So one of our early, um, one of our early commitments was to create a space where learning was joyful again. Mm -hmm. And we, so along with the high expectations, knowing that all of our students need to be, have access to, um, high expectations and then have somebody believe that it's possible and will relentlessly pursue um, achievement in that way. And so that was, that was part of our, that was part of what the third reason in terms of the achievement disparities in Minnesota was that we wanted to make sure that all students were having these rich academic learning um, rigorous experiences. Mm -hmm. um, what we found was that when there were pockets of innovation happening, so we would, we were looking um, for for teachers who were doing really interesting things and committed and um, to ensuring that all students were, were having these joyful experiences. What seems to be happening is when there is these pockets of innovation, 
it almost felt threatening to other educators or the system itself. And so when there were pockets of innovation happening, teachers would innovate, but then some of their colleagues would be so critical of what was happening, would just pull them down. And so there was this sense of being crushed. I thought I would be able to make a difference, but because I, so I enter this profession thinking I'm going to, I'm going to help students learn and create these beautiful spaces for students to learn. And then when they do that, the system itself almost, and, and the system itself is almost oppressive, um, is oppressive. And so they, they can't sustain any of that innovation. And so we wanted to explore what would it be like if we created um, an organization that really lifted up the strengths of teachers and created that space um, where there were more more people <laughs> creating that sense of innovation because teachers are leaving. So it, just because the, the, the context, number one, um, it's, part of it is the sense of, I, I don't know if I can use my strengths to really make the difference I thought. The second is the amount of expectation um, on teachers and the lack of, well, this is going to sound like a, this is a very common thing, the lack of time to, to think deeply and really design um, learning experiences that are, are rich. It's really difficult in the rhythm that we currently have in our school. And so Thrive Ed was also about reimagining time and how, um, how that would provide joy both for, for teachers, but also really importantly for students. So students didn't see that school was just a means to an end that school itself would be this joyful experience and they would start to become and, and really reflect on what they wanted to be as they, um, what they wanted to be, who they wanted to be as they traveled through their education years. Instead of, I have to take this class because that's gonna get me to the next step, which is gonna get me to the next step. All which is true, but, if we're, but if that only works for a handful of students. And so what would it be like if students were having more authentic experiences? And so that was, so part of the reason for the fourth piece was teachers leaving the profession was knowing that um, the pace of the surface level work that teachers were being asked to do. Um, and then also just this, this notion of learning should be some somewhat joyful um, yeah. and we should be learning deeply about things that matter deeply to both our, our own for ourselves, but also mm -hmm. for local and global um, communities. So, so important. So yeah, so important to pay attention to that experience of the, the newer teachers. And I'm not sure if I look back on my career as an administrator or, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I hope I was mindful of those first few years and, and making sure that folks get off to a, a, a really strong start with the career, because often as far as assignments and course loads and, and prep work, it's usually the newer teachers that end up with you know, having to teach all over the map, if you will, and, and the kind of experiences they have. So I, I love that connection to inspiring teachers to remain in the profession and, 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 and focusing on their ability to be creative and innovative with, with teaching. One of the most intriguing things I think you do at Thrive are these uh, summer internship programs, right? You had one in 2019, you had one this, this past summer, one focused on co-design and the other focused on restorative justice. So Talk a little bit about that program. What's the purpose of it? Um, and, and what do you feel some of the most significant outcomes have been from the internship summer programs? We, um, yes, it's a, that, that has been really the center of what we wanted to do because we wanted, there are, a, there are so many different nonprofits doing incredible work. And so early on, we knew we didn't want to create another organization that would 
talk about certain things, provide some really interesting pieces, but we wanted to provide something that was very different. And so part of that was providing students a paid internship to talk and dig into school itself. And so the first summer, 2019, we hired 21 students. We were originally going to hire six. <laughs> and wow. we had 21 in people or 21 students submit videos and um, who were recommended by all of these different teachers around the, the metro area. And we just couldn't say no. And so we hired 21 students and then they they all reflected on how their experience, what their experience had been. Um, and then what they researched one area and either produced, they produced podcasts, they produced videos. Um, one, one young woman produced a, um, or wrote a, a fiction piece about school and um, we had spoken word pieces and then we presented a, a huge symposium and to the community as well as to our Lieutenant Governor, Peggy Flanagan, um, came and they had this platform of being able to share what they wanted to see and they inspired a ton of educators as well as some community members through that and you can actually see that on our website you can see the whole um, symposium as well as a lot of the students work this summer we wanted to go a little bit um, even more focused and so part of the first summer was these design workshops where we were looking at what would be the next step and so we decided that it would be amazing to have um, teachers and students facilitate design and facilitate learning experiences for other teachers and their students and so there's two things or two pieces emerged one was how do you with your students co-design units of study so if we wanted to put students as like giving them choice we talk a lot about choice and voice and so we um, wanted to design or to look at co-design. And so the students have developed a two-day experience where teachers and their students, actually students can come, any student can come from okay. anywhere they want to come. <laughs> um, and if teachers come, they have to bring students. So teachers can't come without students, but students can come without teachers. Teachers. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds but fair. I know that's what the students, so this is, uh, so we'll launch these in January, February, where, um, where they'll, people will come and they'll learn how to co-design um, grading policies, assessment practices, um, whatever the issue is, or even units of study. The other one, the restorative justice, as, and that actually, the restorative justice piece is a huge um, part of how do we change the discipline in schools? Because yeah. we know so many times, um, it's the whole notion of a school to prison pipeline is a real thing, and the students yeah. dug into that. And um, the roots of restorative justice is in the indigenous communities. And so, the students have, and, and our teachers have experienced restorative communities. And so they have a two day experience for um, educators to learn how to develop a restorative justice practice um, that will lead to a community really supporting its students and also holding its students accountable, uh, holding its community accountable to, right. um, to, to really elevating, um, not only learn, but also a feeling of like connection. So yeah. we're really excited about those. Like the students have done an incredible job. <laughs> I do that for a living. You and I do yeah. that for a living. We design workshops for a living. And I'm watching right. students and their teachers design these two days experiences. I mean, they're thinking about <laughs> how do we shift power and control? And yeah, I just, that's oh right. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's just, I, I just can't, every time you finish talking about some of the things that you're doing it through. I just feel really inspired each. I, I, I want to respond to your answers by saying, Oh, that's so inspiring. And I feel like I'm, I'm saying that every single time. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the lab school idea. The, uh, uh, but it sounds 
incredibly exciting, inspiring, ambitious. Um, on your website, you talk about, and I'm going to quote your website here, that you're preparing to open an entirely new school that promotes mentorship, personalization, competencies, feedback, internship, co-creation, restorative justice, authentic learning. This school will become a learning lab for schools and collaborative teams. So what's the vision for that? Like, what, It feels like a, a big vision and, a, and, a, and an ambitious plan. So talk a little bit about what that might look like or what that's going to look like. Absolutely, what we're going to do, we've been in conversation with a number of local school districts. We want to, um, we want to create an option um, and a new way of doing school to help not only, not so that, so that people can experience school in a very different way, how we use time differently. So the idea would be that we would set, um, create a set of competencies and um, we say create a set of competencies. We would have a school that was a seven through 12 um, and we would start small. So there'd be a smaller number of students. And um, within these competencies, students would be, we would use the co-design experience that we've been um, working on to both have students design their own pathways of learning. So we'd have some traditional courses, of course, but a lot mm -hmm. of the work would be students looking at what do they want to look at and learn about. Um, and then along with a mentor, so they would have a teacher as a mentor who would help navigate um, some of their personalized learning. So here's a set of competencies. What are all the experiences that you're going to have um, in order to meet those competencies at each level? Um, we also have a firm commitment to having partners, organizations, and businesses in the community. So students will be out in the field one day a week. Um, and during that day of the week, um, teachers will have a full day of design and planning. So let's say ninth graders are out on Monday, 10th graders are out on Tuesday. Now with the pandemic and our whole new <laughs> business learning, um, yeah. time take on a whole new meaning. So that will not be as hard of a sell <laughs> or hard of <laughs> a shift as it maybe would have been before this. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, the Collaborative Lab School will be a space where we'll be um, really trying new things out and, and trying to think of the teaching role in a little different way um, okay. and having, having students be really in the driver's seat, but also teachers really mentoring and providing a significant amount of feedback. One of the things that we know from our work, Tom, <laughs> is yeah. the power of feedback. And so I right. think that's the other thing that positions our lab school differently is there've been some amazing innovations, but often the assessment side of it falls short. Right. And so people are confused about how to assess and will this mean that my child won't be successful in the future? And so we're mm -hmm. really committed to creating not only the set of competencies, the personalization and feedback, but also the yeah. evidence to show that um, that this is really, kids are growing, our mm -hmm. students are growing in really important skills, and then we'll be able to, to um, position assessment in a very different way as well. Right. And so we're excited about being able to try some of these things, mm -hmm. because the school districts we're partnering with then can send teachers to be able to learn a different way or experience right. it, give us feedback as well. And so we want to do this um, in a way that really lifts and builds on strengths and, and doesn't compete, if you will. Um, yeah. Certainly there's always a little bit of that, but the idea is that yeah. this space would be a learning space. And also then it provides a place for teachers to take a next step in their career. Um, so they're still alongside of students, but we're using time so dramatically different. Um, and we'll be able to hopefully, the goal would be to be able to invite other um, educators in to, um, to learn and to also help us um, figure out how to, how to take this reinvention of school in a, in the direction it needs to go. It's um, you're, you're, you know, we've, we've talked about this countless times about how 
the innovation side is exciting, but the assessment side can sometimes fall flat. And therefore, we either don't know that students have reached that level of growth or that sophistication with those competencies. And so the or or we're just it, it just de sort of devolves into playtime, but we don't have any substantive evidence that the students uh, can present to us. So the idea of focusing on assessment, of course, for you and I and, and for Cassandra, as we, we wrote about that, is such a critical part of it because it often serves as that roadblock, doesn't it? It just serves as the, what, how would I assess that or how would I create criteria for that? So I love the fact that, that you're focused on that. Um, you know, we, it's, it's clear to me that you have, um, brought student voice to the forefront and uh, have had students be uh, drivers and decision makers at ThriveEd. And just for listeners to know that next week, we're going to have a number of students from ThriveEd on to, to talk about their experiences. And so we're going to get the students' perspective and empower them and continue to fulfill the mission of, of ThriveEd, which is giving them uh, a, an opportunity to talk about their experiences with you. So uh, last question, Nicole. You are, of course, and I know you're not going to do this, so I'm going to do it on, on your behalf. Uh, you are, of course, a nonprofit, um, and you do accept donations. And uh, so can you share with listeners, uh, if they're interested in donating to ThriveEd, um, how would they do that? And we want to make sure the work at ThriveEd continues. So how, do, how does that work with donations? Oh, thank you, Tom. Yes, um, we are a nonprofit and we do have um, a button on our website um, for okay. donations. And so it's pretty simple to go do that. So if our, if our work, if our values align with um, your giving priorities, and we would very much welcome Awesome. Um, donations or financial support. So <laughs> Yeah, we'll share that. We'll share that website again at the end here, uh, just to make sure folks know where that is. So Nicole, I am just, um, I'm thrilled for you. I'm excited about the potential that ThriveEd has in store for the future. I, I feel like this could be a, a model for North America, maybe around the world of ways to authentically and deeply experiment with what school could look like and uh, and and really sort of dig deep. So I, I can't wait for next week to hear the students directly and, and listen to their experiences as well. So um, but for now, okay, so that we're going to we're going to stop the uh, Thrive Ed conversation and we're going to talk a little bit about Nicole and uh, a fun exercise I'm doing with all of the interviewees is is uh, is asking them a kind of fun game called this or that I give you some choices you have to pick one and then explain why you've chosen that one. This is just a chance for listeners to get to know you a little bit. Um, as I was putting this together for you, and of course I didn't share these with you in advance, uh, I feel like I know you very well. So I, I, was, I was guessing uh, as I put them together what I think Nicole is going to say. So, uh, and if neither work for you, go off script and think of a third alternative. <laughs> That's totally fine. That's totally fine. Okay, so this or that. The first one I'm gonna ask you is, Burgers or tacos? Ooh, ooh, that is, uh, I, I like both. You can't sit oh, on the fence. Tom Gusky did that to me two weeks ago. <laughs> I weeks know. Ago. Taco burger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We could invent the taco burger for sure. Or you can I'm go off go script. Burger. I'm going to go burger. You know? Yeah, I knew you. I see. I guessed you'd pick burger. So I'm one for one right now. So that's good. Okay. <laughs> Do you, here's, here's one. Being too warm. Or being too cold, which would you rather? My son just asked me that question the other day in the ah, car. Interesting. I can't even believe that you. Uh, that's hilarious. Um, and I couldn't decide, but I actually I do think too cold. 
You'd prefer being too cold. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got that one wrong. So I'm one for two right now and guessing what <laughs> you would say. All right. Phone calls or texts? Oh, texts. Texts. I knew that one. That was an easy <laughs> one. <laughs> two, I'm two for three. All right. Here we go. What's worse? What's worse? Laundry or dishes? Um, laundry. Laundry. Okay. I see. Um, I'm wrong. I'm wrong again. Folding and putting away. Laundry itself isn't the issue. It's the folding and putting away. That's the issue. Yeah. Putting the clothes in the machines, not the challenge. It's the folding and putting away. I thought you might pick dishes because those are things we typically do every day versus the once a week, but all right, two for four. This is, maybe I don't know you as well as I thought I did. (laughs) I have boys, so my laundry is daily. All right, last one, last one. Which would you prefer, a type A vacation or a type B vacation? Ooh, there's no type C, right? No, <laughs> not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I think type B. Yeah. Most of my life is type A, so having yeah. type B, a type B vacation sounds beautiful. All right. So I'm three for five. I, I, I have 60%. So not, not bad. Not bad. I, I would have guessed type B because I know that uh, in the craziness of your life and my life and all, all of us who, who at one time in uh, our lives traveled a lot and facilitated workshops a lot, sometimes it's just nice, just nice to vacation and, and, uh, and do nothing, right? Okay, Nicole, I have one final question for you. It is a question I'm asking, again, all of the people I interview for the podcast, and it is about success in general. Uh, It's a question that, um, because we're on the podcast, I'm trying to focus a little bit on on just success and how people feel success and what their definition of success is. So my question to you is, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? What would you say? such a great question. I, um, I think, I think it is about being able to feel confident that you're living authentically Mm. and that you're, you're living authentically and you feel surrounded by, um, people who inspire you, lift you up, see the possibility in you without having to do anything. (laughs) And also, um, being able to feel like you're feeling, fulfilling your purpose, um, and a purpose where you're, you're, um, seen and your strengths are part of this world that's a little complex, a little crazy, um, and trying to make other people's lives a little bit better, but also just living authentically and feeling that sense of peace. So I think yeah. that would be wow. <laughs> I love that. I love the idea of just living authentically and and being true to yourself. Uh, you know, look, Nicole, we could, I could do this all day with you for sure. Uh, listeners, you can follow Nicole on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Nicole Dimich. That's D-I-M-I-C-H. You also should, hopefully, will follow the ThriveEd uh, Twitter handle. That's at ThriveEd1, and that's the number one. Uh, and you can also check out the ThriveEd website, where Nicole had mentioned earlier, where you can donate or just consume what it is that ThriveEd is all about and, and maybe find some inspiration there. That is www.thrive-ed.org for all the information about the amazing work that is happening in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And of course, you can also follow Nicole's assessment work at the Solution Tree Assessment Center uh, with myself and Cassandra as well. Our work is at www.allthingsassessment.info. Nicole, this has been uh, just 
absolutely a blast to have you on. Um, I, I know we'll get a chance to do this again at some point and may, maybe next time when we're at one of our institutes or workshops when we're face-to-face and, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to travel again. But uh, Nicole, thanks for your time today. I, I just, I feel so inspired by the work that you're doing uh, with ThriveEd and I hope listeners are as well. So thanks so much for being here today. So grateful. Thank you so much. It was awesome. <laughs> In the news this week begins with a story out of Salt Lake City that uh, the teachers and administrators in the Granite School District are going to receive a COVID bonus this month for their work during the pandemic. Uh, The district's Board of Education has approved a one-time bonus this past week, uh, basically calling it a thank you gift for what they're calling the craziest quarter of their career. There's no doubt about that. All contract educators will receive a 1% bonus. Uh, Hourly employees are going to get hundred dollars. Um, I think, you know, the board chair mentions um, things like uh, burnout and exhaustion as being the reason why they had looked toward providing this bonus. And the bonuses also seem to be an effort to improve the relationships between the teachers and the board because uh, earlier this summer, hundreds of teachers had rallied against the school district saying that the, the plan to reopen uh, as an entirely in-person teaching was was risky um, and they had a, a number there's a bit of tension around that as that year began um, also interesting that the board is using some of the reserve funds first to pay the bonus but also using some of the rever- reserve funds to avoid layoffs they when the school year began uh, enrollment was down by uh, a few hundred students, and they had a surplus of 17 teachers, and the district is working toward using that funding uh, to, or the reserve funding to to help preserve that and make sure that, that people stay employed. Um, they So far in this school district, the numbers have been relatively low. Um, they've been enforcing mask wearing and social distancing, et cetera. So this is a little bit about what I was talking about in the opener, talking just about the acknowledgement and um, trying to mend fences and 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 making a public acknowledgement about the challenges that we face right now, you know, money doesn't solve everything. Of course, um, no no amount of money necessarily reduces all of the risks. But um, I would imagine that the the teachers and administrators and staff are probably and you know feeling more seen and more heard than uh, they were prior. Um, now, I recognize also that not every school district or school or state or province has the funding to be able to do something like this, nor even maybe the provisions uh, in terms of regulations and, and, and laws that regulate school budgets that would allow them to do that, sort of contracts, etc. But again, I think it's uh, more than just the money. I, th- I think it's the acknowledgement, it's the recognition that the work right now is atypical, <laughs> to say the least, and that it's really critical that we acknowledge the work that educators are doing right now. And there, of course, is some risk associated with uh, any face-to-face situation during this pandemic. So sometimes an acknowledgement goes a long way and just publicly saying thank you and we appreciate you and we see you, uh, I'm, I'm sure makes those educators in that school district feel very valued um, and, and know that their board recognizes the work that they're doing. Our second story is a story from Healthline.com, and and this headline won't surprise anyone, but it's still a good reminder of the residual effect uh, during this pandemic. And the the headline uh, 
of the story is that kids mimic their parents' behavior when it comes to COVID-19 safety. And like I said, I don't think that surprises anybody. Uh, But the story is really about how with so many schools opening, especially in a face-to-face model, both across Canada and the United States, teachers and school staff have an additional challenge of getting students to comply with the COVID-19 safety guidelines, uh, you know, on top of the already demanding job as a teacher. So that includes, of course, the wearing of masks throughout the school day. And again, I I can't account for everybody's regulations and, and where you are in particular. But generally speaking, the article talks about, you know, trying to enforce mask wearing, um, social distancing as much as possible, and and all of the reasons why this is challenging. Uh, the story sort of continues on talking about the reasons range from the desire for students to protect their personal freedoms to some expressing distrust for medical science. And there's just a large, seems to be a large population maybe not the majority, but a large population intent on uh, maybe disregarding the COVID-19 recommendations that schools have put into place. And of course, uh, a lot of this certainly comes from parents. And the concern is that there are parents who are not necessarily, you know, in fully endorsing the back to school sort of regulations. So if parents are meeting the regulations with a sort of collective eye roll, then obviously kids are going to pick up on that and they may they may in fact bring that mindset or that attitude to school because obviously parents are very influential on on their children. Uh, in the article, uh, Jennifer Hoskins Tomko, who's a psychotherapist, talks about that children look to their parents um, and how their parents are responding to these recommendations. So she talks about just the importance of making sure that parents understand and teachers understand where all of this is coming from. Uh, The other part is that, you know, again, parents are incredible role models for children. And this is especially true of young children, right? So when we're thinking about children, say, between the ages of 3 and 12, maybe, as kids, you know, get into their teenage years, maybe there's less of an influence. But even adolescents are are certainly looking to their parents to guide them in their decision-making in a lot of ways or just taking their cues from them. And this really does create you know, you can see how this could create a tremendous amount of stress on students because you have so many points of conflict that could arise in the school setting. Um, This one teacher, Brian Trang, who is a former teacher in Arizona, he talks about how in his experience, he could usually tell the political, religious, and economic ideologies of children's parents by listening and watching the students, right? So of course, students bring that. And it just leads to a tremendous amount of conflict, uh, at least potentially, right? So you've got potentially student-to-student conflict where some students are coming in fully embracing this idea because maybe they themselves do or their parents are uh, fully on board with the, the orders or the regulations that have been put in place in the school. But then you have other students in the class who maybe not. And that creates tension between them. You, of course, will have tension between the student and the teacher. The teacher has to first endorse and enforce uh, the back-to-school sort of regulations and rules around mask wearing, et cetera, washing hands and, and, and all of the things that are put in place by the school. And if the student is not uh, fully behind that, you can see that there could be conflict arising there. You, of course, that could lead to tension between teachers and parents because teachers know that 
you know, for example, most seven-year-olds are coming to school reflecting and mirroring the attitudes of their parents. And so now the teacher is in a position where if the student is being non-compliant to the regulations, they, of course, have to contact the parent. And that could create uh, tension there as well. And then, of course, that escalates and it becomes tensions between, you know, parents and administration. I mean, there's so many layers to this that are, are really challenging. So, of course, educators have to enforce the rules. And a lot of these rules are put in place by either states or boards or provinces or, you know, there's a lot of different sort of layers of, of regulation that come. And I think that in our work, my, my thoughts around this are that we really should, as educators, focus on not a sort of broader uh, expectation, a societal expectation, but really focus on the fact that these rules and regulations are, and, and many of you are probably already doing this, but, but these rules and regulations are about when you're at school. So we try to avoid the generalizations um, in a way that sort of makes wide sweeping societal statements. And we just say, you know, much like businesses will say, look, if you want to shop here, you got to wear your mask. You, you, you know, these are the things you have to do. Uh, if, you, if, if you don't, then that's fine. That's, that's up to you, but you can't come in here. Now, of course, Schools are in a bit of a different situation because we can't refuse our clientele, so to speak. But at the same time, I think if we can avoid those sort of wide sweeping, either societal or political statements, we can maybe reduce some of the stress and anxiety in our students. So maybe talk to the students about, you know, this is about how many students are here. And this is about the physical distancing and the proximity to this many students. This is about trying to protect our bubble. This is about trying to keep school open. And try to avoid these general statements that talk about just like, this is what a good citizen does in our society. You might be right, and you probably are right. But when you look at it through this, the lens of the student and you think about how students respond to getting messages from parents and messages from educators, uh, it can actually create a lot of challenges. Talk to the students about the fact that, look, in the school setting, we have many students who might be immune compromised or underlying conditions, etc. So that's why we're doing this here. That's why this is important here. And I think if we can make it as local as possible, that can help, again, reduce the anxiety. What I'm saying here is not about whether or not the regulations are right or wrong. This is really centered on how do we make sure that students are not feeling sort of overwhelmed or a disproportionate amount of stress and anxiety uh, because of the tension that's created between uh, their parents and what the schools are saying. So try to keep it focused on the schools. And, you know, maybe you think the parents are wrong uh, and, and, and maybe the parents are wrong or maybe the parents think the school is wrong and overreacting, you know. If we could set all of that aside and just, you know, put the students at the center of this and just be steady. What students need right now from educators is they need us to be steady. They need us to be consistent. They need us to be sort of there for them and not sort of live the ups and downs. So these are rules and expectations for here. And if we're, you know, taking an honest look, this isn't new. The idea that the rules at school are are maybe slightly different than the rules at home, that's not a new concept. So I think that's the focus. I think if if we want to try to to preserve the relationship both with the parents and with the students, we keep the decisions local, we make it about the school, we make it about the greater school community. And we leave the wider sweeping societal statements for parents and, and others to, to make that, that uh, we, again, we may be right, but I don't think it serves the student well if we start 
um, chiming in more broadly and therefore creating the tension with parents and, uh, and with their children. In Assessment Corner this week, I received a complex question from Teresa, who is a high school chemistry teacher and part-time curriculum director from Illinois. And the question surrounds student accountability. And she sent me several questions that I'm going to try to address. But her questions were, what are districts doing to address the issue of accountability? Or what structures would you suggest for the year, especially with the complications of being both in-person and remote? What routines would work best when sometimes students aren't even signing in to Zoom or Google Meet? And how do we hold students accountable in both settings uh, for this year? And how do we communicate to students without demotivating them and putting zeros in the grade books and all, all of those typical questions, right? This is a complex issue that is made, uh, pre-COVID, this was a complex issue, but this is a complex issue that is made more complex by the pandemic. You know, there's a number of different angles and issues that admittedly, I might not be able to dig into right now uh, on this response. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus more on the setup ahead of time than necessarily the specific follow-ups because everyone's situation with what their models look like is slightly different in terms of the expectations, the policies, the regulations, etc. But I really do think the setup is what makes the biggest difference in terms of holding students accountable. So the first setup for me is that all approaches to accountability and the coinciding policies must be preceded by the policy of reasonableness. Like, are we being reasonable with the expectations for the group of students, right? And and certainly the group of students, but with the situation with COVID, are we even being reasonable with the individual? So expectations may be sort of universal in the school and the expectations of your students, but there may be individual students for whom the level of reasonableness is not there. So that's the first question. There is another unpleasant but honest conversation that needs to be had, and that is, it starts with a question about what is the minimal amount of evidence necessary to justify and fully defend a passing grade? The only thing it can't be is all evidence since it's never been true that students have to complete all tasks because no one on an extended illness would ever be able to pass a class. That's simply not been true, that they have to complete all the tasks. Now here's the difficult part. If they don't produce the requisite amount of evidence, then they may not pass. And again, different districts, provinces, states, etc., will have specific rules and regulations about the whole pass-fail issue, right? And we're really talking here about high school. But on the balance, that could be a natural result of what happens. Now, this all has to be approached with compassion and kindness and empathy and understanding, but at the same time, teachers have to be able to defend their decisions around grading and reporting. And obviously, if there's a policy from the board that, that comes down or the school, the principal, etc., well, that's fine. And, and that's totally different. And this is really an issue only at the very end when grades need to be determined. But ultimately, if the student fails to produce at least the minimal amount of evidence necessary to justify and defend a passing grade then they may not pass. And that, again, is an unpleasant conversation, but it's an honest conversation that I think needs to be had. The third thing I would say is that we have to force ourselves, if we're not there already, force ourselves to examine evidence through the lens of standards. Tasks can and do overlap, right? So an assignment, a quiz, a test, etc., can all address the same standards. Remember, what you're seeking is evidence of learning, not the completion of tasks. 
Now, often those are the same thing, but often they're not. So decide as a department or as a school, what is an adequate sampling to defend, again, and justify a passing grade? Emphasize quality over quantity and think about how you have less frequent but higher quality assessments that allow the students to fully demonstrate their thinking. Now, this question wasn't really asked by Teresa, but I want to add this in because there were a lot of questions last spring, especially um, in terms of the schools that I worked with. And I know many people have received the same questions about academic dishonesty, right? That wasn't really a question that Teresa asked, but when it comes to accountability, that question does come up as well. So Again, as far as the setup is concerned, make sure that when you assess your students, you ask for original sort of critical or creative thinking. Ask for originality around the work. Ask them to synthesize. Ask them to produce work that is clearly something that is their original, you know, their work. Because students can only copy that which is copyable, right? So if you think about it, just make sure that in the setup of the assessments, you're asking again for high quality evidence. We also have to think about the RTI or MTSS continuum. So what the three tiers of RTI or MTSS, et cetera, even PBIS, what, what the three tiers teach us and reinforce is that the intensity of any intervention has to match the intensity of the presenting challenge. And if the intensity of the intervention doesn't match the intensity of the presenting challenge, the intervention's doomed to fail. So we can't look at holding students accountable through the lens of one size fits all. That, that's just never going to be true, right? So tier one is the tier of prevention. So some of the things I outlined just a few moments ago are what will lay a foundation, an appropriate foundation to set students up for maximum success. You would be wise to predict that no matter what you put in place tier one wise, you will have some students emerge as being unresponsive to that intervention. So that leads us to make decisions about tier two. And tier two becomes a more targeted, uh, often a group based because there's a lot of likeness between the students uh, for whom the interventions are being applied. So it's more group based, it's more targeted. And this is where you're going to have more frequent, more intense, both intervention and monitoring. And then again, you should be wise to predict that there are going to be students for whom tier two interventions prove to be ineffective or I, guess, I suppose fall short of the expectations. And those are students who emerge in tier three. And we know that tier three is about personalization, right? It's, it's tailoring the interventions to the student, right? So in tier two, the student is fit into an existing structure, whether it's intervention classes or whatever it might be, depending on the situation or circumstance. But in tier three, that's reversed. We build the interventions for the individual and we personalize it. So remember the goal with accountability, you know, in, in don't get don't lose the plot here. The goal in assessment is always accuracy. So obviously zeros are out, especially if you're using a percentage based scale, because, you know, you're going to create an outlier situation. You're going to distort uh, achievement levels and it's, it's going to be a whole mess. And we can get into that more another time. But um, especially when you're using a percentage based scale, uh, if you have a, a four level scale, like some people do ask me every once in a while, Tom, is there ever a case when I can use zero for work not handed in? And the answer is yes. I don't love this, but the answer is yes if you shrink the scale. And that's why the advocacy for a four or say a five level scale, a zero through four, because once you shrink the scale, there is no outliers, which then doesn't produce a distortion. Again, it's not my favorite thing, and I'm not sitting here saying that's my number one choice, but I, I would be dishonest if I say it, it wouldn't work. So the goal is accuracy. So 
the zeros, if you're using a percentage-based scale, uh, which uh, Teresa indicated that her school or district is is doing that, that would distort achievement levels. Now, if you leave those spaces, the missing assignments blank, uh, then of course they can give too much emphasis to the other evidence of learning in the grade book. And it, again, gives you know some somewhat of a false impression. It's better, but it's still not necessarily accurate. Uh, the most accurate, of course, is an I. It's incomplete. And, you know, some of the grading programs out there, you'll need to manually override and just, and here's the key, right? And we did this in a, uh, a school I worked in years ago, where not only when an assignment was missing was the student's, uh, you know, mark or grade for that assignment an I, but their entire cumulative grade was an I. Their, their A or their B or whatever the grade might have been, it disappeared and it became an I. And that's it, because you're incomplete. That is the truth. You know, if you if you put the zero, you deflate the grade. If you leave it blank, you may in fact somewhat inflate the grade. But the bottom line is, if you're if you're missing evidence, you're missing evidence, and therefore it's incomplete or you're in progress. Now, again, some programs will require you to manually override that, but I think that's the easiest way to kind of communicate that the the truth, and and so we avoid the sort of demotivating that can happen to students, etc. Now, in extreme cases where Students aren't even logging in and not even signing into Zoom, et cetera, um, and doing absolutely nothing. This starts to become a code of conduct issue, right? More than an accountability issue related to assessment. Assuming we have reasonable expectations in place and all things being equal, and we're, we're not talking about students on IEPs, et cetera, and for the most part, um, students should be expected to meet us halfway and do their part. Our job is to provide them with the opportunities to create the necessary support for them to be successful and to maximize their success, but they still have to invest in their learning. So the bottom line is to re-examine your policies and practice and ask a few questions. Are our expectations reasonable? Are we inadvertently adding pressure, like the pressure of assessment, through volume, or maybe it's through unreasonable timelines? Um, do the students have the support or the capacity, right? Do they have support at home from their parents? Do they have the capacity to do the work and, and produce the evidence of learning that we're asking for? Um, do they have the tech? Do they have the bandwidth? Are they, are they able to sort of, you know, meet the, the guidelines and expectations? So this goes right back to number one, which is, are our expectations reasonable? We have to, especially now with all of the iterations of, of models and learning that are going on right now, we have to get out of the way. In other words, we have to be there to support students when or even if they engage in their learning and, and get out of the way so that we are not, for example, through a zero, accelerating failure by disproportionate, disproportionately impacting um, their their grade in a way that really is mathematically invalid. So specific policies aside, uh, if they have not or do not uh, produce the evidence of learning, then ultimately there will be a residual effect. And, and again, I, I hate talking about that because that's not why we got in this business, but it is the truth about what will happen if a student fails to produce the necessary evidence. So if they have not or do not produce the necessary evidence, then there will be a residual effect. And provided we can look ourselves in the eye and, you know, and say, 
we did everything we could to support this student, then that may be the outcome. Now, if they cannot produce the evidence of learning, then they need to be surrounded with support. And those students have no business being disciplined, right? They have, they need to be supported and they need to be assisted. And depending upon where they fall on that continuum of support, um, we're going to have to try to surround them with that support. So there's true equity and access to the same opportunities everyone else has. Remember that real discipline is about support and inclusion, not removal, isolation, and the application of a series of aversive consequences. In Tweets of the Week this week, I want to encourage you to follow Brian Butler on Twitter. And uh, Brian's Twitter handle is at bkbutler underscore Brian. Uh, Brian is a prominent speaker and author in both the areas of professional learning communities and RTI. Uh, Brian is incredibly inspiring, but also very substantive. Like, you, you know, there's times where you see on Twitter uh, platitudes and, and just these sort of pithy comments. And, and what you'll get from Brian is both inspiring, but also substance. So, uh, follow Brian. He's he's you know produces great content himself. He's also very gracious in his endorsement of others, uh, and there's a kind of selflessness to his Twitter profile that I really have come to admire and appreciate. Uh, he's almost in some ways a curator of content as well. So again, that's at bkbutler underscore Brian on Twitter uh, so for some great content, both from Brian but also content from others that Brian sends out. Okay, that's all we have for today. A few announcements before we finish up. A reminder of those virtual workshops coming up this fall. The two-day training for my book, Grading from the Inside Out, is November 9th and 10th or December 10th and 11th. Uh, both are available, as well as the two-day workshop on standards-based learning and action. That's the book I wrote with Garnet Hillman and Mandy Stolitz. Uh, Garnet's going to be leading the training on that October 26th and 27th, so there's still time to register for those. All that information can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. And also, please send me your questions or even just your topics that you'd like explored on Assessment Corner. The email address for the show is tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guests will be three thoughtful and inspiring students from Thrive Ed. I promise you, you are not going to want to miss that. And again, thanks for joining me this week. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And again, spread the word. We love to expand the listening audience. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 